Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Ms. Nelson, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Um, I'm Lisa Nelson, and I'm with the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at University of Pittsburgh. And my background is in law and public policy, a PhD in political science. And so my interest is in uh, public policies associated with the internet, but also the legal ramifications of how we regulate it. Now, can you tell me like a little bit, like give me some examples of like what things about the internet that you kind of focus in and talk about? I know censorship's a thing we're going to talk about, but also like social media. I mean, the digital frontier, it's like this digital age that we're in. I'm hearing about like my nephews growing up, they're going to be digitally native. So they're only going to know what the internet was like. Now I came in, like, I guess, I mean, I'm not, I was right at the beginning of the internet. I kind of, we had one computer in our house, but there wasn't a whole lot you could go to besides MySpace. And that was just fun in its own. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, my my interest is really in just the the historical uh, evolution of how we regulated the internet and and social media in particular. Of course, you know, social media comes after the start of the internet, but the ideas that were at the forefront of regulation in the beginning involved uh, respect for and appreciation for First Amendment rights, and I think there was almost a sense that. The First Amendment would would be the underpinnings uh, of the way in which we regulated the internet, and um, so there was this attempt to try to um, not hold the internet providers what they called like interactive computer services at the time because it was a broad um, moniker for things I think that would to come would be uh, in the future, and so I think ironically enough they didn't anticipate that private entities who would become the the foundation of the internet would then have or develop an interest in censorship. Um, I, I think that just wasn't in, in the vision that they had for what was to transpire given the first way in which the internet was regulated. Do you know when censorship first started, like when it started, I guess it was the companies that really started to enforce it. But I hear all the time people talk about, oh, well, it's a private company. You know, it's their business of if they want to limit you or not. And I'm like, yeah, but they kind of leave it like an open door policy which is like the fact that they don't tell you exactly what, like they'll give you a little guidelines and stuff, but then things can just fall into those guidelines. I think I had a video that was removed off YouTube and I had to appeal for it. And it was all because the guy's website, uh, it, it expired. And they're like, you put a bad link, it's phishing. I was like, no, it's not. The guy works for the government. Like, wait, what are we, but you can't explain it because they'll just look at it and then reject it. And then it's in their hands. And the next, you know, two strikes or three strikes, you lose your whole channel. That's most people's like, what invest all their time into it. Right, right. I mean, so yeah, the argument, this, I think it's a simplistic argument that, you know, they're private companies so they can do what they want. And that that is true, right? I mean, the constitution applies to public entities and private entities are um, out in the sphere where they don't really have to account for constitutional rights. But we have been here before, right? I mean, it wouldn't really fly if we were saying, well, they can discriminate on the basis of race and, you know, it's it's a free enterprise market system. And so restaurants and hotels and, you know, all the rest. This is actually where the idea that that I started thinking about this is, is that if you have fundamental rights, like First Amendment rights or, the the prevention of discrimination, you can't really just shrug your shoulders and say, you know, it's a private company. And so therefore we shouldn't care, especially in a democracy. And so that's 
I mean, we had been in this moment before with other rights and, and um, early arguments uh, that involved segregation were similarly based on this economic model of private enterprise and we should let private companies do what they want and, and that's just fine. But when it comes to trying to promote a civil society and a, a democratic polity, I, I find it hard to swallow the fact that First Amendment rights should just be in the hands of private entities that don't really have any don't have any accountability really to um, the people that they serve and, and the purpose that they serve, which is increasingly important in our in our society and not not even just domestically but globally. So I. Yes, they are private companies, and 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 that that certainly is an argument, but it is one that's has been used before to try to usurp um, the application of the Constitution to private entities. What private companies like are at the forefront, like you would in your mind, like the ones, some examples that you would have that would be like big hitters. I can only think of like YouTube, Facebook, and things that people use on a daily basis, but. I, their involvement in censorship, and I know Facebook was limiting links. They were doing a bunch of stuff. I mean, you get banned if you just said something to somebody like, "Man, you should just slap yourself in the head." Like that's a dumb thought. That's a that's a ban, and that's or that's a that's a temporary like taken down for thirty days or whatever. And it's just, I think it's gone a little too far. Where I start going, this seems now like it's more in the hands of algorithms than it is actual people viewing this type of stuff, which is good. It makes it easier for your job, but it's also not good because you flag stuff that does not need to be flagged that could be taken out of context. And then who's going to review it? Nobody's going to review it. They just slide it off the desk. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think, I mean, if you were, if I were really being honest about like the, the way in which private entities are now stepping into the regulatory impact on First Amendment rights, which I mean, just by speech and associational rights, there's a whole uh, spectrum of private and nonprofit entities that are really kind of doing the work of government, you know, identifying groups that are, you know, classified as being um, hate groups or groups that are, um, kind of tagged with, you know, being inappropriate uh, in, in a civil society or uh, companies who decide to withdraw, you know, PayPal access from certain individuals who they don't agree with their politics or they don't, or they're, they're trying to limit a protest that involves um, an issue that they don't like. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a whole range, I mean, beyond the internet where private companies are stepping in to do the work of what government can't do, constitutionally speaking, but are they are they're serving the purpose of limiting the sphere of rights, of free speech rights and associational rights. But on on the inter internet, I mean, I think it's not only social media platforms uh, the censorship that we know of, you know, because we've had some revelations from the Twitter files, for instance, and people just anecdotally are reporting on when they've been censored. But I think, you know, you've got, you mentioned AI. I think the AI is going to play a bigger role in the kind of search results that you get. There's all, there's all sorts of evidence that, you know, page rankings and priority is given to certain, um, certain media outlets that are in keeping with the politics of, of the, the uh, search engines, that, that that has an effect too. It just the, the, if you think about it, the sphere of knowledge becomes compressed more and more according to the politics of knowledge that, they, that are being pr promoted. Now, 
were people aware of any of these private companies in the beginning? Like if there was policies, like when the internet first rolled out, like were there stuff already guidelines in place when it comes to like how big these companies can get? Because YouTube's a household name. I think everybody knows YouTube and then Google's another one, but these companies somehow have creeped their way into the door of now they are above the policy making. It seems like to me from at least my standpoint, it seems like, like you said about the politics, picking and choosing. They, you can say certain things like classify this as a hate group, but they don't classify something else as a hate group. Like you can talk trash on YouTube and get banned, but then if you talk positive about YouTube, it's not a ban. Like it's weird picking and choosing. Shouldn't we just not talk about YouTube in general then, right? And then it's like, th yeah, the weird, I'm going to choose this and choose that. I just don't like. I feel like every, everything, you have to have conversation. You have to have free speech. But when it comes to that policy making in the beginning, I mean, I don't think anybody really expected the internet to be so influential and to – everybody's lives i mean i think the pandemic showed that most of all about now we all use zoom that's a household name now but how much the internet is really a part of our life trying to not use your phone or the internet for two days it, most people can't do that no no i think it, i think we're increasingly dependent on it for you know not only communication and transaction interactions i mean it, it's just growing in in um, the size of reliance that we have upon it i mean in the in the early phases of regulation I mean, the whole CDA policy, um, the Communications Decency Act and Section 230 that governs the internet and, and or interactive computer services um, is one that came out of a, a case where Congress was trying to limit what it considered to be indecent or obscenity um, content on the internet. And the court, Supreme Court in ACL versus Reno, and this was in the, the mid-1990s, spent a long time talking about the importance of the First Amendment and how Congress shouldn't step in to try to limit the generativity of the internet, that it should be free to evolve. And that all of that conversation surrounding Section 230 was based on, like, we need we need this to be something that, that uh, generates freedom, generates free speech. Uh, the normative values that were the underpinning of the regulatory effort with CDA and in, in Section 230 was devoted to protecting the First Amendment. And even companies early on, when they were, um, there's a case, Laling versus, um, uh, is it Laling versus, it's a Laling, Yahoo, it was Yahoo. So that's way back when in the Yahoo era. But Yahoo um, was being limited in France for selling um, Holocaust paraphernalia. And they they used the First Amendment defense to try to say to France, we can't be regulated because our values are the First Amendment. And this is in the early 2000s case. And so they were they were holding on to the First Amendment when it served their purposes to, I think, exploit uh, the, the users and, and generate more users for more you know, data and, and all of that they rely upon for marketing. Um, they were using the First Amendment as a defense to try to say, look, we our values are the First Amendment. And, you know, that that started to transition at some point where and I, I can't tell you when the censorship happened. I don't know if it was a political moment. I don't know if it, if it just started. Um, Do you think it was after like 9-11 when surveillance started getting a little bit heavier on things? Yeah, but I, I don't feel like it was totally politicized at that moment. I mean, I, I think the machinery was built at that point in time. You certainly had revelations like AT&T was funneling information to NSA, which which again, 
um, uses that, uh, that, that lack of constitutional regulation of private entities. So AT&T was basically saying, okay, we're going to give you all of our customer data to NSA because they couldn't do it. Um, you know, that was just flying across this, this, um, this spectrum of, of private public entities. And that was a revelation that was shocking to Americans at the time. But I think it was, it was quelled by the sense, well, we're fighting terrorism, you know, and we're fighting this threat internal to the United States. Somehow it got, I think it took on a much more political tone. Maybe it was Donald Trump's election. I'm not sure what, what triggered it, um, but, but certainly you started to see a, a very explicit ramp up of content regulation based on, you know, COVID was also, I think, a trigger for that as well. You know, you, you, at least from what the Twitter files show us, that, that there, there started to be a very um, a heavier political motivation in the censorship than had been before, you know, maybe post 9-11. Well, the, I think you're right, the machinery is probably built in that time. Yeah, the surveillance stuff, I mean, looking for domestic terrorism, that's just, I mean, I understand that because I can look, you can look back through history and what they were deeming as domestic terrorism necessarily wasn't domestic terrorism. It was just kind of aggressive things that they didn't like and they were kind of going after. So there's a track record history to be like, this might happen again in the direction that we're going. But if you look at like, um, I mean, even, I'm not right or left. I'm not anything political. I just believe deep state, which is like a capitalistic thing. It just keeps me out of the debating back and forth. Um, but I believe if you have power, nobody ever stops it just a little bit. They kind of keep going and goalposts moving. And when I saw the disinformation board start to be an IDR created, I go, you can't, there's nobody in the world that is fit to run that. There's nobody fit to tell you that this is bad and this is good. Those are your morals. That's your own experiences in your life. That'll have you change your thoughts that way. But it started becoming a real issue because a lot of people were hopping on board with it. And they were people that necessarily weren't content creators or weren't people that use the internet every single day, but they use it occasionally and they come across things that they don't like. Well, I was like, that's why there's a mute and a block option. But I mean, if that comes up in the next 10 years, I don't know where we'll be at. I think that it could be a possibility where we have, I mean, we have sites out there now like PolitiFact and all these that go out there and say, we're the truth seekers and all this type of stuff. And I'm like, okay, I'm like, all right, fine. You know everything. Sorry, I didn't know. And then yeah, I'll, no, I, I always say the difference between information and misinformation is six months, right? I mean, we're told lots of things are are misinformation, and then it turns out they're they're not. So and and there's I don't know actually don't know again where that I, idea comes from is really counterintuitive to me because uh, again if you think about what conversations and debate in a democracy, at least. I mean, if we're li living in a totalitarian society, then maybe, yeah, you know, then you you have misinformation, there's propaganda and there's misinformation. But but in a democracy, I, I don't understand the imperative to limit conversations. And, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. And, and I don't see the justification for it, except a political motivation to try to truncate groups and ideas that are a threat to what is, you know, the, the political powers that be. We can't really say this on YouTube, but do you think it really kind of hit, a, I guess, a bump in the road when the Q stuff started happening? I feel like that was their, probably their big example and big fear was that if there's people out there that could be on forums or something like that, that could be creating like, I don't know, conspiracies. And I, 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 some of them I'll listen to and some of them are a little bit out there. But there is like some real like stuff and fear. Like I studied the JFK assassination and I've talked to people who were alive at the time who investigated it to tell you that it's a lot different than what the history books are saying, especially through the 64,000 things of documents. But even then, I got a video flag that was a JFK one. They said national security. I was like, what the hell does that mean? Like, 
what did, what am I doing? I'm just having fun in like my house. That's it. Like, you know, like no, exactly. It's a real fear is like um, I don't know if it sparked up after the Q stuff or if it really started getting in there, but having government control, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. And I do want good governance, but I also think that we need to understand that every American is entitled to say what they want. And if you don't like it, you can just go to something else. Exactly. Yes. No, I think good governance is 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 part of having some transparency. And, and right now we're, we're living in a world where there's very little transparency and increasingly so, because I, I think there is an offboarding of government work to nonprofits and private entities that share a certain political viewpoint that, that are operating to, to um, limit what they see as potentially problematic groups. And I don't know if it's in, in, with the intent, like a malintent, you know, I mean, is it is it that they really think the groups are dangerous or the ideas are dangerous, or do they really just want to kind of, to quell political dissent? I mean, you're right about the historical background. I mean, we've been in this battle for a long time over various different threats internal to the United States, whether it was the first Red Scare, the second Red Scare, the civil rights movement was was viewed as as a, a movement of political dissent that that was by some viewed as very dangerous and disruptive and chaotic. And, and they tried to use uh, governmental forces to try to limit that dissent. And, and that, you know, gave rise to kind of the, the imperative that we have for very broad First Amendment right protections that came out of that fear that the civil rights movement was being limited by these ideas of threat and danger, you know, just as the second Red Scare had tried to target certain groups and individuals as being dangerous to the communist. It's the word paint them, paint them, paint them with the brush of communism. And then everybody be like, go ahead, take care of them. You know, no, same- no. I mean, people were on board with it. It's, it's horrifying to see some of the survey uh, research because people were reporting on their neighbors. And I mean, we're in a similar, I don't know what it is about human nature that, you know, we tend to like, you want to jump on board with, uh, with finding the other and, 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 and calling them out so that we somehow feel part of something. Do you think that's the, a little bit of the media's fault when it comes to some of the news stations that play? They really kind of politicize things and make things kind of really out there to the point where people develop these really harsh and solidified views. Like I always like seeing two people on Twitter, like trying to like go back and forth on different political views. And I'm just kind of sitting off to the sideline eating popcorn. But then like they go into their echo chambers and then they get stuck and it just reverberates. And I think that's what the government tries to talk about. We can eliminate those echo chambers. I was like, well, you need those because those people are going to eventually break out and think they can debate somebody. And when you have those open discourse debates where pe- two people can actually go back and forth, you learn a little something. Like I'm still talking to a person, but maybe it's because technology has become too personalized to us. We're really involved as people into technology, probably a little bit more than we should, where I think that makes it also more impactful when they start limiting things as well, too, because it is kind of like, hey, 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 whoa. You tell me I can't access. It's like going to a toll booth and they change the price when you go there to the next day. You're like, hang on a second. Yeah, no, I, I think it's very I mean, it is. I mean, I think when you start to find yourself under limits or you're aware of limits that are being put on you specifically or ideas or certain outlets, it 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 feels very um uh, it feels very foreign and it feels very um, intrusive and it feels like it's very inconsistent with what the ideals are uh, that attach to the First Amendment. I mean, I spent some time in the Soviet Union, so I have to admit some some kind of paranoia about the, about the idea that 
you know, there are echo chambers, yes, but there's also propaganda, right? So, <laughs> and I and I think the two the, the things that that um, how they interact is to tear each other down. You know, you can't just have propaganda or official news sources. That's ridiculous, right? Because they they have in their own interests that they're trying to promulgate and 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 hold um, and preserve the sanctity of. Do you know about Operation Mockingbird? I do. I couldn't. I couldn't speak to it, but I've heard of it. Yes, it, it came out. Well, I mean, it was a while ago, but it was about getting news media, covert people in the media, to be able to pitch stories and run stuff in some of the biggest magazines, like Time Magazine at the time, and a bunch of stuff. It was around the time of the Kennedy stuff, but mostly just that time period when, especially with communism, they're trying their best to just propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. I mean, I think it's like that today, even with some of these companies. And you hear that from Mark Zuckerberg himself when he's talking about the Biden laptop situation. And he said the FBI agents came to him, said there was Russian disinformation going around on the Internet. And whenever someone tries to send this link, you block it. And it's like that's not even about being political. I don't care if you're a Trumper or a Biden person, but this if it's a real thing and it was in the state beside me, then we should be able to talk about it and look at it. But they wouldn't let you send links. They wouldn't let you do any of that. And I was like, that's scary. The FBI went to Zuckerberg and now he's admitting to that. I was like, who else is like that? I think people give Elon a lot of crap, but actually I don't like the way he's releasing the stuff because he's doing it like a show. I'm just like, dude, just release it all so we can all see what's going on. But they are limiting people, certain parties specifically, which is a really big issue. Yes. No, I I, I think it's it, it's surprising to me that more people are not upset, except that it does. It serves. I mean, free speech is always threatened by a, by political power, right? So that the Free speech is always what our favorites wear. So I think there's a lot of people who like to see limits on free speech because it it shores up the legitimacy of our of our institutions or the the politicians that they like to to support or have in power. But it's not it's not for a long term survival of a de democratic society or a representative government or legitimate institutions. It doesn't make it just doesn't make sense to thwart the flow of information. I don't I don't care if it's it has, you know, a tinge of falseness. I don't care if it's a, a theory. I mean, it just it seems like unless you're threatening violence, then that's that's where the First Amendment begins and ends. Right. That's where um, when when they were trying to to create a paradigm for protecting freedom of speech and association post civil um, civil rights era where it had been threatened. They, they made it a very, very high standard for the purpose of saying it only you only truncate speech when you're threatening direct and imminent violence. And to me, that's where you can't misinformation, disinformation, even even these broad categories of hate speech are just they're I don't know, they're shields for politics. That's that's where I, I kind of come out on it. Do you think it repeats maybe the counterculture of like the 60s and 70s where you have individual people who are programmers starting up their own platforms, um, starting up their own accounts just because the big monolith ones? I know everyone recommends Rumble and doing that, but I was like, yeah, YouTube still has the reach, though. It's like what most people know. So even though you might take a hit, I just look at all the people that, you know, I know some friends that got banned off platforms are like, I'm going to start my own then. And they're programmers, so they can do it. Um which I just think you think what what do you think about like a it's like another counterculture? I don't see the censorship thing stopping, and I don't know what policies could even be established to 
cut off from these companies because I'm more afraid of the companies than I am of the actual government or anything like that limiting speech. I think a lot of this happens to boil down to the people's political investments that these company owners have. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I don't, I mean, to what extent, that's what's really difficult to know. I mean, you always see resistance when there's political power. I just don't know on the internet, it's, it's got, it's such a unique character. Like you say, you know, the, the, the power of it is in the reach of it. And when you have to draw back to a corner <laughs> to have your ideas out there, that's that kind of destroys what the intention of the internet was supposed to have been. So I don't, I don't know. I have hope, you know, that there is, there's some kind of counter revolution in terms of the, the way that people can get their messages out or that they can resist some of the uh, the ways in which censorship occurs, but I think it's I think it's really difficult in this kind of environment with the with the internet to try to to try to do that. I think the technological reach of individual programmers or smaller platforms it's just difficult to resist what's already been built. I mean, you've got decades of infrastructure in the internet that's been built around these these um, kind of heavy hitting platforms like YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and what, what Snapchat, whatever it might be, or TikTok. So do they have other ways around censorship? Like have you looked into shadow banning at all? I mean that's a that's a form of censorship. It is. No, I, I think we I mean people were talking about shadow banning when they in they called it a conspiracy theory, but <laughs> of course it's it, real. <laughs> it's happening. You know, obviously now we know it's happening. And that's that's also, I mean, that of course, that's a form of censorship as well. When you're throttling information, you're throttling individuals on the basis of politics. Basically, you're not. I mean, you can't really say with a, a straight face that these are because it's dangerous ideas or dangerous people. It's just ideas you don't like. You know, there's like YouTube has. has been focused on Prager U, uh, you know, which is not, you know, it's a set of ideas. Maybe you politically disagree with Prager U, but they spend a lot of time throttling Prager U or or demonetizing Prager U. For what? For what? Right. I know. Uh, you know. And, and meanwhile, you know, they're 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 not really focused on other things that maybe you know other people are saying are more dangerous. I don't know. The, the, it just seems like a very obvious disconnect between this this thing that they say they're doing which is protecting the internet against hate and disinformation and then clearly just focusing on you know a very benign political wait Prager used the university right yeah it's it's an online university so they they have a series of messages uh, or like video it's video content basically where they talk about christian values or the 10 commandments or I mean, it's very, you know, it's just, it's not that, it's not threatening and it's not hateful. It's just, it's something that that whoever's moderating YouTube doesn't like. And so they've been de demonetized and they've tried legal challenges to try to get that kind of that throttling of information lifted, uh, but they haven't had much success because of Communications Decency Act, uh, Section 230. Wait, wait, wait. So they're going after religion. I didn't know they can go after religious stuff. I'm not religious at all. I but mean, there's. Yeah, it's it, it, anything that they want, they can do because it's it's not constitutional. There's no constitutional protection for that private entity. They can do whatever they want. Like that's that's the power of private entities. Unfortunately, in our constitutional system, they they can control the marketplace of ideas. And I, I think, I mean, you mentioned like the 
like the hierarchy. I think you're right. I, I think these companies have far exceeded the power of government. I mean, I almost feel like they're more important than government. Like they're in, and they, no one's, you know, government may be giving them advice about who to throttle or who to shadow ban or what kind of content they don't want to see. But they're, they're the ones making the decisions about what is out there and who gets to have their voice heard. You think it's kind of like a pay to play system? Like they, government can pass a message and they can boost up that person, whoever that they might need boosted. Like there's a, there's a YouTube put out a, a thing that shows you like how to be successful through YouTube. And it's nothing that's anything political. It's nothing that's anything. It's just food stuff or just reviewing things, making more influencers where I was like, you're going to do that. And you're going to give these people a boost in their algorithm. Basically, if they follow these short videos, this, there's no conversations. It's just mindlessness, which that's someone else's path. They can go ahead and do that. But the fact that it's making it harder for people that put in a lot more work and do a lot more, like might have a serious discussion, like a podcast, not me or anything, but I don't do that. Uh, but there's someone out there that could have like a, you know, interview somebody and they could get this whole entire, like, I don't know, problem solved, or I have an open debate about something. And you'll see those conference videos or whatever, if a school's holding one, they'll get like a couple hundred views and I'll watch them. They're entertaining, but then it won't be boosted up to the top because it does not fit what YouTube is pushing with the algorithm to be successful. So it just doesn't, nobody comes across that. So nobody cares about, that's why there's so much being inundated in our faces 24 seven. It's hard for people to care about censorship or any of these things. Cause there's always just something else or something else. And the mindlessness has people rolling their eyes at everything now. Like nobody cares anymore. It's hard to get someone to care about last week, let alone something I'm talking about from like 60 years ago. No, that that's very true. Yeah. And I think it's just, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I don't know how to fix that. I mean, part of Part of it, I think it's it's difficult to find somewhere to step back from with a critical viewpoint and say, like, look, this is happening. Is this right or wrong? Right. We we seem to kind of have lost any, even though we talk about critical theory all the time, we're, we're a little bit non-critical about the powers that are operating on us, you know, that, that we think we have these ideas that are um, novel and or against some kind of dominant paradigm or um or, or power system of power say but, deep but state really, it's fine what say deep state it's fine deep state, yeah, there's right. something going on i mean it, i don't know how to explain it. if it's the fbi the cia or whoever that's running stuff or the guys are running stuff but there's a lot of things that just don't make sense that goes on this internet platform which i wonder have is there a legal case that could be against some of these companies when it comes to the damage that they're doing despite what they're trying to limit like they're guys is that we're limiting damage on the internet to young children which always makes people go oh 100 percent kids everything but if you really examine like what happens if they take a creator down who built 10 years into a platform and now he can't access any of the 10 years of work he lost it all he doesn't have any of it saved on his computer does that person get depressed does he end up hurting himself you know is there those ramifications that are thought of is there an actual appeal process and review by human people to be able to tell if this person is actually like that and can i trust those people to review it honestly or just hear something and flag it no i mean it's all internal review process i mean again so that's where the the section 230 is like a double edged sword is because it was designed to try to give them as much latitude so that they wouldn't be responsible for content um, it didn't anticipate that they would start limiting content. I mean, they were supposed to just be free of liability because they could then not be censors. 
that was the idea. <laughs> and, and somehow they became censors and now CDA Section 230 still protects them from liability for censorship. And so that it, it's really a very strange evolution of the intent behind CDA. And I, and I just, there seemed to be no real legal cracks in that defense. Um, except in there's one, which is the, there's the uh, child trafficking law that was put into place, I think, in 2019, which does hold liable those social media platforms that are promoting content that is um, involving sex trafficking. And so that would be one way in which the liability of Section 230 has been diminished. But other than that, like the Supreme Court just decided in a nine to zero decision that the Anti-Terrorism Act, uh, which the plaintiffs had tried to argue that because of a terrorist attack, the social media companies who had been promulgating the terrorist propaganda should be responsible for the cause of the terrorist act. And nine to zero, the court was like, no, there's no causal responsibility between that promulgation of information and the terrorist act. So that would be Section 230 that that prevents that liability from being attached, which is good if they were using that lack of liability to let information flow. But they're using that lack of liability to um, censor you know, whoever they would want to censor. That was nine to zero. Someone voted that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the idea, again, the idea is if you take Section 230 and you think about what it was designed to do, which is, you know, to just lift liability so that uh, a social media platform doesn't look at content. It just is like, OK, unless it's going to cause harm, like real actual harm, criminal harm, there's no reason for us to take the content down. Um, that was the whole intent of Section 230. but. Instead, they've used that lack of liability to censor and to take content down that they don't like. And so there's no legal recourse because they are wrapped in the protection of Section 230. So if that would have if that would have passed and they would have probably lost all the I get the grip that they had on censorship, then we wouldn't be dealing with some of the issues. But that is, there's no reversal for that. They can't just be like, wait a minute, we made a wrong decision, kind of like the internet when it first was created. If you had it free, then I mean, if they could go back, they could charge on it and then people, they would love to do that. But if you have this whole censorship deal, I mean, is there any talks about anything in the Supreme Court when it comes to just an overall look at certain platforms and certain graphs that they have in there? I mean, Google is a great example. I don't know if you remember the Google car scandal, um, but their Google Maps car was driving around and you know, doing its thing, taking map stuff. Well, it was sucking up bits of Wi-Fi from other people's houses and it was taking their data from their, you know, their Wi-Fi stuff. So it got a lot of private information through this and Google was just fine, $10,000. And I know I say that and you go, Google, you mean 10 million? No, it was $10,000 because it had never happened before and they didn't know what to charge Google. That's nothing to that company. And I go, they just found a way from instead of using our phones and tracking our data that way, they just found a way to get it from a bunch of people's networks in their houses by just driving a car down the street. I was like, you don't think they're going to find a way to perfect that method a little bit better and not get caught the next time? You say that, that gets called conspiratorial. I'm like, it's just smart business. That's the, that's what I would do if I owned the company. I mean, I hate to be evil, but they put do no evil in their guidelines. I'm like, look, nobody ever says it, but come on now. They, they printed it down on paper. 
Well, that's why there are some constitutional remedies potentially if if we were to. So there's something called the public forum um, argument, which is PragerU has tried to argue that the internet is um, basically a, a um, it's private owned. I'll just say property, and and that if it's privately owned property and it's used, it's being used for a public function, then they have the obligation to protect constitutional rights that would typically not be protected on private property. And just to give you an example, there's a series of cases where um, religious rights were limited by private company towns. So in in a in a small location where the business owned all of all of the the private property in that area. Um, if a and this involved just a, a woman who was a Jehovah Witness who wanted to, you know, proselytize, and they wanted to keep her from doing that because they said we own this property, you can't do that on private property. She won her case because there was no alternative for her to proselytize. All of it was privately owned company land. And so, Google, uh, I'm sorry, PragerU has made that argument about Google and YouTube, which is to say there is no alternative, you know, that's really account uh, or measurable in the same way that YouTube is. It's a, it is a public function. It's a public forum. And even if it's privately owned, they should be responsible for the protection of constitutional rights. So that is a constitutional argument that could be used um, it hasn't. It has been used by PragerU not successfully thus far. But I think again, as the internet becomes more and more integral to everything that we do, it does start to serve a public function in our in our society. And then the other one, the analogy is to the segregated South, and people hate this analogy, but it's it's similar in that um, there were uh, challenges to this idea that if you have private businesses discriminating on the basis of race, that there should be some constitutional way to make them accountable to the 14th Amendment protections. And the way that that happened, there, there was a um, ar arguments that, that demonstrated that government regulation of those private spaces was entanglement enough to make the constitutional constitutional applicable to those private entities because the government was in essence regulating them. And when I say regulation, I mean things as simple as liquor license, zoning laws, very minor kinds of government regulation that attached to these private entities that made them accountable to anti-discrimination laws under the 14th Amendment. And that that argument is um, one that really raises the hackles on people's uh, <laughs> uh, neck. I mean, because it, it they don't like to see segregation in the same light as censorship. But but ironically enough, those academics that were arguing that that entanglement was sufficient enough to make the Constitution apply to private entities were using the First Amendment as an example. They they're arguing basically like we would never truncate the First Amendment and allow private entities to limit the First Amendment. We shouldn't do that when it comes to the 14th Amendment. And so there is room, constitutional room, um, and it, I don't know when it'll happen. I mean, but it's you have the case like Missouri versus Biden that's happening right now that shows that there's government entanglement with private entities to give rise to censorship. Those are the kind of cases that will provide a foundation for 
saying, look, it's yes, it's a private entity, but government is entangling itself. And if government is entangling itself, then the Constitution has to apply. See, that's the issue is like I want to handle these big companies. But at the same time, I don't know if the government's the person to do it. I would I would elect an oversight committee or someone that would be a group of individuals that don't really have biases in anything to be able to look at some of these companies just to see what they're involved in. But I know people get protection. They feel safe when you say the government. But I was like, look. They're just as bad, too, in some aspects of things. I mean, they have a job to do as well, too, but everyone's up for their own game in this. And we have to try and look at people that are looking at it as more of like when you start skewing thoughts, you start changing society. And in that direction, 10 years, 15 years, things will start to change. China didn't start their social credit system with just monitoring everybody like that. They did it because the cops go home at 10 p.m. There's too many people to police in China. So it was a way of citizens to step up and do something. And now it's gotten to the point that it's at now. And then people go, well, we're not in China. I was like, okay, we start before it starts heading there. Like, that's what I'm saying. When you start looking at policing on the internet, that's a really big thing where it's like you having other people report accounts. You know, I think even there's a Facebook survey where they had the added the anger emoji because they realized it gets more reactions from it, people clicking on a post where I was like, see that type of maniacal tactic? I was like, they're doing that with other things on the internet. I mean, reporting something get sent whatever it gets sent to but you're incentivizing people to go and try and find things that either they don't like they want to try and take down and now people are going out like their uh, hallway monitors which is a problem yes yeah no def definitely i mean i i think it i would have faith in having the constitution apply i i think that would be a culture shift i mean if if there were even a one or two cases where you basically were like this is you know, a public forum, PragerU gets to have its information on YouTube. It's not dangerous. It's not in violation of the First Amendment. That would that would start to to I think culturally shift and make people aware of of kind of the the reasoning behind the First Amendment. I mean, I, I teach in college, right? And kids have no idea what what the First Amendment is about. They think it's I don't even know what they have no understanding that what it was designed to do or what purposes it serves and why, you know, in the civil rights movement, it was so fundamentally important for for protecting groups that they think they're aligned with now. Um, they just don't understand that there is you have to you have to know about it and understand it in order to have it survive. I think you have to experience um the issues that everyone starts talking like why we support like when we look at censorship and stuff you have to experience censorship yourself and then you go wait a minute that was censorship it's like yeah because like once i stepped on the spider web i can't stop stepping on it at this point now i'm monitoring everything in a podcast someone says something i'm like hold on a second you can't say that on youtube so unless you want to only be on spot like i'm lucky spotify the guy just doesn't care about most things but you can put disclaimers too like there's this disclaimer and dr drew can talk about any covid stuff he wants because he wasn't originally on the covid like side of like all this type of stuff now he's gone the complete 180 and he just puts disclaimers on his videos and they he gets some stuff flagged but he they less restrict him where I go, why is it because he's a celebrity figure or something? It it doesn't make sense. And I've had his co-host on and everything. So it's like she said the same exact thing. Why am I the one getting tossed out on the ship or something like that? But I don't know. It's a it, like I said, it's 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 very, very complicated. But I'm curious, what was your perspective like before you did this type of research? Did you have this strong view of like freedom of speech and all that? Or is that just from looking into how connected technology is and realizing it's like, oh, these companies are really involved? 
I mean, like I said, I was in the Soviet Union. You know, that was eye-opening for me uh, because I, uh, I guess I went there thinking, you know, communism was all so great and all the rage. And I, <laughs> you know, because that's, I was in graduate school at the time. I think being in that society and understanding what it what it feels like to constantly be careful about what's said or what kind of resources you have access to, what kinds of pins you wear, what kind of books you buy. I mean, that was that was eye-opening to me. I hadn't really realized what it would be like uh, to lose that freedom. And and you know, I, I spent some time with a family who um the son was an artist. He committed suicide by jumping out the window because he just couldn't. He just couldn't deal with it, you know. And and I think the kind of uh, people quietly accept it and try to live with it, but it's I think it's really corrosive and it's it runs society. It will eventually destroy society because you can't if you can't trust you, you know your neighbors not to report you or um, you're you're worried about saying something in the classroom that's going to get you fired or writing something in in a journal that's you know or putting something on the internet that's going to to come back and haunt you uh, or or limit an opportunity I mean that we're living in that moment now and uh, the full blown consequences of that are really frightening to me you know and I and I saw the full blown consequences of that in the Soviet Union and I I guess that carries, that's always been something that's been really a, a transitional and transformative moment for me. Are you hopeful for like the future with censorship and freedom of speech and all these types of things? I, I worry because I think, I think we've lost privacy, for instance, because we've become acculturated to just being under the, the microscope, uh, you know, and, and self-disciplining our actions and thoughts. So and I and I worry, given that I'm in the classroom, that kids have already been acculturated to not uh, to be self-censoring, but also be censors themselves. I mean, they're pretty aggressive about what kind of ideas in content they're willing to discuss, and the kind of there's a very you know there's party lines you know that you have to um, ascri ascribe to, and that's something that I've seen really change dramatically in the last five years. And so I, I don't know where that's happened, why, why we've kind of lost the sense that the First Amendment is um, no longer valuable. And they certainly see it as a impediment and they see it as a hateful thing, you know, that it only generates support for hate. And I it just, I, I don't know how you win back the, the minds of people who have been convinced that free speech is something that's dangerous when when they don't really understand what it's going to mean when they lose it you know when they they will eventually lose it they may be on top or they may be part of the censorship regime now but they'll eventually find themselves um, not being able to talk about certain things that it just destroys society i i think it i think you see it with the like the kids and this is going to be a bad example or bad way of stating this but the more like um 
it it charges them up, but it, like my my nephews, for instance, they'll, they'll message me, oh my god, can you believe that? You know, they'll talk about COINTELPRO, they'll learn about it in like history or something like that. But then they're looking on the internet, like, oh my god, they did all this and all this, and how dare they? I was like, yeah, but you know, the full document though, like you can find the document, and you can read it, but that's not what's being shoved in your face. And it's like that limiting of information because it's a certain political thing or starts going this way. It has them giving up their freedoms, which I think you look at the generations, you know, younger than me and a little bit younger that have only grown up with this censorship issue. It's only going to desensitize them to losing certain individual freedoms and rights when it comes to what we have access to the Internet. I've had so many people tell me and I was I born I had the Internet, but there was a people that have told me older that go, you don't know what it was like in the beginning with the Internet. And I go, what the one? How old is the internet? I was like, I'm not that far off from like when it was created, you know, like I'm 25. So I'm looking at it and I'm kind of like hearing someone explain to me about their experience when the internet was this free range type thing. And I'm like, it's free range now. They're like, nah, not like that. And I'm like, okay, well, that's an experience I don't know. So then I'm thinking, what's it going to be like in 10 years? What's the internet going to be like where I'm going to be the guy complaining about back in my day, the internet had all this. And now it's like, oh yeah, you can only go to two websites uh, per week and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't know how you turn I don't know how you turn that back, except that there is for every action, there's a reaction, you know, and, and I think I I want to say there's there's some hope in, in some of some of what I see. I mean, I think I, I just I don't know. I just Practicing don't know. digital hygiene would be a good start with some people. Uh, being like, hey, let's look at like some of the stuff you post, what you I mean, I look, people can monitor themselves. I mean, I don't put that up to a company to do that. But I think people understanding how deep technology is and kind of like rules and policies and guidelines and stuff and start being like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Yes. Point out the things that don't, they creates conspiracies when you have them limit so much. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you don't make people or ideas go away. I mean, that, you know what I mean? I, I think that's part of the lesson that we've learned historically is that that if you push things out you're not destroying them you may be stigmatizing groups and ideas but they don't it doesn't go away i i don't think i mean i i i think at some point you're going to have a counter reaction to all of the heavy censorship or or content restriction or idea moderation that's happening you can't even type Adderall on facebook like i'm in an adhd group and they have to put like all the weird numbers and stuff and spell it in different caps and all this exactly, stuff. Exactly. Right. No, I'm like, I mean, but that's like the government medicates that to people. Like that's a, that's a drug that's used and it's been highly recommended. So I'm like, I'm surprised you can't even mention that on Facebook. No, well, that's the thing. I mean, people find a way around it, right? I mean, it, it just, that, that is, they find a way around it. And, and I guess that's the hope is that you can find ways around it. You find ways to communicate, you find points of resistance that that grow bigger over time. So I, I just, I hope that's the human condition. I, I hope that's the case. The you know, we have been in this moment before. It's just the internet has a different kind of quality to it. I know you can look at history and see so much where it's like, it's just different environment, but it's like the same core issues when he boiled. That's why I talked about the counterculture, but I watched YouTube evolve a little bit in the beginning, probably a year ago. I had like two different vaccine lawyers on that had two different perspectives. Um, one I agree with and one I didn't really agree with. We had the conversation anyway. And um, I told him both not going on YouTube. And he's like, why? I was like, you just, it's not safe to talk anything COVID related on YouTube, but they had updated it around the time that the truckers were doing their movement and GoFundMe had locked down their stuff. 
And um, they said that you could talk about an injury if it is you that experienced it because they realized by banning all, all of it being talked about an injury that they were hurting people that were trying to get their voice out on YouTube so they could get help. You know, they needed someone to listen to them because nobody was. And I was like, it's good to see that little bit of change, but I want to see a little bit more. I mean, you have pe accounts that get deactivated where it's like a uh, old Bill Burr joke or something like that. I'm like, he, the guy's joking. Like he's a comedian. He's on stage and it says laugh behind him. Like you would think that if something would happen, but honestly, they're getting too big and all they care about is the money. But I hope the consumer starts coming first, especially with the kids that are being so involved with it. Because now, like I said, it is YouTube tutorials that are teaching a kid who doesn't have parents um, or a dad or someone to teach him how to change the, I could fix my car uh, door handle from a YouTube video. So when you have the tutorials on YouTube, I mean, how is it, if a kid's going to trust it that much, he's going to look at any, any single thing on there. And then you're only limiting to certain political stuff or whatever your bias is. And that's going to change his whole life or her yes. life. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And um, I, ha I have to ask this, but if you were going to look into another area, like another part, would you focus more on social media? Like maybe like the impact it has on the people's intermediate lives? Or would you look more at like just I, we talked a lot about the big companies, but I would like to go see what's going on. With like, I don't know, one of these major CEOs business accounts. I'm like, where are you guys getting money from? I just want to check. The no, receipt. I think I know I, I I have an appreciation or sympathy for, for that viewpoint because I, I've started to I mean, of course, I I would acknowledge that social media influences us, but I'm really interested in in what's influencing them. You know, there's an economic model or explanation of it, but there's all it, it is. A, it's a really interesting time in which you would make the argument that the more users, the better, right? That's the maximum maximization of economic interest. So the incentives for censorship for me are really interesting. I, I, I don't know if it's just purely political, if it's politics married with economics, you know, there are stakeholder economics, right? That I guess would be part of what they're trying to fulfill. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in that aspect of what's driving the censorship model. And I and I think just as I mentioned before, beyond social media, I'm really interested in what's incentivizing private companies to engage in these points of restriction, not only on free speech, but associational life. I find that really fascinating and, and kind of a, a dangerous time for the United States. Since you were in the Soviet Union for a little bit, did you think it was a little bit suspicious when they were saying Russian disinformation out there? Oh my got, gosh, yes. <laughs> as soon as I saw that, I go, well, okay, what exactly? It just sounds like you want me to be scared and then give you my fear a little bit. You know, like I hate to say it like that. And I've looked up, look, I think the top 10 uh, pages on Facebook are what they call Russian troll farms. And they're like just weird one-off pages with like an insane amount of likes. But you see that kind of everywhere. Like I don't necessarily believe when someone tells me it's Russian disinformation or it's enemies overseas doing whatever. I'm like, well... What, what are we talking about? But that's what everyone's thing is now. Like, oh, you've read some Russian disinformation runoff. I'm like, wow, okay. No, I mean, there, there's so many sources of, uh, of, I guess, propaganda. I just would call it propaganda. I mean, we're being propagandized by, by our own government. By Since the 20s. <laughs> but, since yeah, the 20s. exactly. So, I mean, yeah, maybe the Russians are trying to influence us. We're trying to influence the Russians. I mean, it's propaganda's flowing all over the place, right? So I, I think to simply say that we're, you know, that's the biggest threat we face is is a ridiculous comment. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
But I, I I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is is there a place where people can find any of your links if you have a Twitter or any other social media accounts? Any I keep off of uh, Twitter just because I, I I just try and keep a low profile. But <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm certainly on um, the Gispia website, the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. I'm available by email. I published on Compact Magazine. Um, I've got a couple of articles there uh, that I've published on censorship and in social media. So I'm 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 around. Uh, so I'm I'm doing I'm also working on a um a project where I'm part of a group called the Collaboratory on Hate, which is a, a collaboration to try to deal with um well, it's based on what we just said, um I'm I'm really interested again on how private entities are benefiting from government and serving the purpose of government in trying to target groups that are supposedly hateful and what kind of consequence that has for our civic uh, or civil society. Well, I appreciate the work that you do. I'm going to link your links in the description so people can be able to click and find um, your work as well to any articles that you wrote. Um, and I appreciate the time. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.